When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Well, no surprises that at some point this week we'd be taking a closer look at Everton, and we're going to do that today with board members reportedly avoiding Goodison for their own safety. Players being chased by supporters in their cars. We've also got an owner who publicly blamed fans for the churn and managers and a team who are without a Premier League win since October. Is it enough to, as owner Farhad Mashiri says, put your money where your mouth is? And why can't they do that this month in the transfer window as relegation is a possibility for the first time since 1951? So many questions. Are there any answers? I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. It was intended as something, as a bit of a sop to fans to make them feel as if they had a voice on the board and it didn't cut through. You know, I put my money where my mouth is. You know, that is most than an owner can do. Gordon! What the f***? Even with the most lenient implementation of FFP, which I think we see in the Premier League, they are under really tight restrictions now. It's an impudent finish. It's four for Brighton. It's an absolute disaster for Everton. Everton correspondent for The Athletic, Greg O'Keefe and senior writer Ollie Kay are both with us um, today. Podcast length on The Athletic is, is normally around half an hour, 35 minutes. Uh, and this will this will be similar. But honestly, Ollie, it could be four hours long, this. Oh yeah, and, and there would still be um, there would still be an awful lot of questions still to ask and still um, still to answer the best best we could. I mean, it's you know the the modern day tragedy of, of Everton Football Club is um, a deep and detailed story, and we hopefully we can um, sort of unpack it in as as much detail and insight as possible. Tra- tragedy is actually a, a very good word, Greg, and people might go, "Oh, don't be so melodramatic when when talking about a football club," but this feels. Tragic on so many different levels. It's difficult not to be melodramatic about Everton at the moment. You know, my match piece on Saturday, um, when I looked back at it, you know, yesterday, and I sort of, I'd, I'd, I'd said that Everton were a broken club, and that I wasn't sure that anyone at the moment would be able to put the pieces back together. And there was a part of me that thought, well, is that a bit overblown? You know, I kind of overstated it there, but I kind of stand by that. You know, I've never, I've been covering Everton. <laughs> for too long I was bad certainly for a long time and I um, I've never known things so bad and it, it's it's losing its impact the word toxic because it's just flung around in every direction but it it feels very very toxic and you know, Ollie will know over the years there's been discord between the board and uh, and the supporters that's not new and that predates Fahad Mishiri's arrival but and then of course it's it's spiked when, when various managers that Mashiri has appointed have, have gone wrong and things like that more recently. It feels like it's built to this sort of critical mass at the moment whereby it it is toxic. Goodison's an unpleasant place to be. 
and it's affecting and damaging every part of the club. Let's deal with what happened at the weekend and what happened in the build-up to Saturday's game. With the board being advised not to go to the game Mm -hmm. because of safety concerns, what do you understand, Greg, the story to be there? We arrived, um, I arrived a little earlier than normal at Goodison on Saturday, um, about half 11. And um, you know, just wanted to sort of sense, because it was a big game anyway, right? There was always going to be a lot of a lot of unrest and anxiety and, and the fans were going to do their, um, their coach welcome ahead of the game to try and restore that morale and, and try and recapture the spirit of last season. So I was there early. And we were in the press room, and about midday, there was a flurry of activity, and, and they were handing out these uh, these doc these statements, printed statements, which detailed this um, the fact that the directors were not going to be in attendance for the first time in the club's history at Goodison because of uh, of an identified security threat, and then conversations with Everton staff outlined a little bit more and outlined the context of it and, and the, the incidents that had led towards their own, the club security staff, which I was told is kind of consists of people with you know, a security background, ex-Merside police, ex-armed services, making the decision that they felt it wasn't safe for the board to be there. They said that Denise Barrett-Baxendale had, had been um, sort of grabbed and, and headlocked by somebody at a game, that there'd been death threats and, and really vile um, messages emailed to Bill Kenwright and Denise Barrett-Baxendale and that there was a separate um, and more serious kind of threat to their security logistically, specifically on Saturday. So we reported that um, and, you know, at that stage, Merseyside police weren't aware of it. After the game, clearly what happened in the game happened and, you know, we can discuss that, but after the game... Uh, Merseyside Police put out a brief statement which felt, which essentially said that they were unaware of any of the of the incidents that had contributed to Everton, as they said, making their decision to, to not have directors there. They, they had not had any of those reported to them and that there were no ongoing investigations. And subsequently, Merseyside Police have put out another statement which is longer uh, I have to say it's still a little bit ambiguous, but you know it, it makes it clear that, that again they weren't aware about any of this before Saturday. So this is a decision the club took on their terms without any prior consultation with the police. And and it kind of Ollie doesn't it hi- highlights the whole breakdown in trust between club board supporters that there are all sorts of conspiracy theories flying around now about Saturday's event. Yeah, trust trust is a you know is an important part of this. And fans need to be able to to trust a club's board, and and trust will be less than other clubs. But it, but Everton, it just feels like there's sort of a weariness towards Bill Kenwright, who's been there for for two decades. And I think Bill Kenwright is a completely different conversation to the Mashiri conversation. But there's also a suspicion towards Mashiri and the Mashiri regime, which has spent undoubtedly and it's invested in this stadium but it just seems to be the club just seems to be run pretty terribly in many ways and look it, it may be that the club is, is being run better now I mean, there was a strategic review last year they've you know they've changed managers since then they've appointed another uh, director of football Kevin Thelwell it, I think when serious allegations are being made 
and when the fans don't believe them, I think that's less about the specific allegations than about a climate in which they don't really believe what the club say. A couple more things on the protest that actually happened, Greg, at the weekend. There were banners at Goodison for for most of the board members. You may tell me all all of the board members. I, I can I can understand when things go wrong at a football club that they direct their ire towards a, a chairman or a CEO, and they are tend to be well known at the majority of clubs. Um, there were other board members who had banners made about them. What is the discontent towards a finance director? Or why, for example, I saw one at Goodison that was against Graham Sharp, who, you know, in his playing days was a club legend, obviously. Mm. So what, why is the anger being directed to some of those other individuals? I mean, it's frothing over and, and, and sort of spreading in, in all sorts of getting back to sad and sad directions and it it is indicative of the level of anger and a little bit of the sort of I think the society we live in really but in terms of Graham Sharp you're right he is a club legend uh, and generations of, of fans will look back on him as probably one of the best centre forwards they've watched however the nature of his appointment as a non-executive director to the board was slightly controversial because there was a feeling among some fans that when they were crying out for expertise and for people with football sharps and, and people who could really kind of, uh, especially commercial, Everton, you know, took a big, big hit when they lost the Usmanov USM sponsorship money. And, mm. and that there's been a long standing accusation that the board aren't good enough when it comes to bringing money in. There was an acknowledgement that the board needed to be bolstered. And all of a sudden, the chairman, and I think, you know, the chairman and Denise Barrett Baxdale. Their sort of response was to bring in was to bring in Graham Sharp, and now Graham Sharp would probably be the first to hold his hand up and say he's not a football finance guy. He, he's not uh, got a background to speak of in management. A brief spell at Oldham, I think. He's in, you know, not not been a technical director. He's been around football, but it felt like it was intended as something as a bit of a sop to fans to make them feel as if they had a voice on the board, and it didn't cut through. So that's the background and context on that. Grant Ingalls, the finance director, who the most sort of baffling part of the banners, and there were some banners that really hit home. Some, you know, in terms of messaging, somewhere you go, well, I mean, it's certainly that's a zing, if you like, and that's kind of got the message mm-hmm. across. But one saying Grant Ingalls out, darkly comic, because this is a guy who he's a finance director, and and he's not been there very on the board very long anyway. I'm led to understand he's he's actually really good at his job and in a very difficult situation where Everton have been right up against the, the buttress of, of being in tr- in deep trouble for their financial fair play uh, failures. He's actually helped them just steer away from that and avoid any of the, the worst ramifications. And, you know, he's pulling all sorts of levers and, and doing his job very well in difficult circumstances. And yet somehow his name's ended up on a banner. And I think to get back to it, it's just this anger is being spread everywhere now. Yeah, and 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 suppose that was my next my next question. Then is protest can be really effective. Not, I mean, not to, obviously not just in sport, but any protest yeah. can be really effective. Is this too scattergun at, at at the moment because of the amount of anger? You know, 
players were players were targeted as well. Yeri Mina, who I'm, I'm fairly sure hasn't featured that much this season. I, I will give my life for this club. Ellis Sims, who's just got back from being on loan mm. at, at Sunderland. There will be some people who might have looked at the protests at Goodison on, on Saturday and think, on the one hand, there are lots of people there who know this club inside out, care deeply about this club and want it sorted. But on the other hand, there may have been kids in those protests who were just up for a bit of a rock, really. So are they being hampered by not being targeted, the protesters? From speaking to them as they prepared, you know, this this campaign, It's a they have an actual campaign, NS now. So they're kind of like trying to, to riff on the, the club's nothing but the best motto and they would say and did say that they don't they neither did they encourage or endorse any of the the sort of young lads who kind of like confront the players and that wasn't part of their campaign but at the same time for me you've hit on something there because I feel my opinion is there's a bit of a lack of clarity in part of their campaign and when they talk about sacking the board for me that doesn't make sense because they seem to be directing their anger at the moment at the board in a silo and fired Mashiro, Mashiri, sorry, uh, also, but maybe more at the board. And for me, surely the only man who ultimately can do anything about any of this is Fahad Mashiri. And they're stuck there because he's the guy who's building this new stadium. But he's also probably has to take the lion's share responsibility for the state they're in since he's come in in 2016. So... There's, I feel there's a little bit of a mixed messaging there. And anyway, you, how can you sack a board? If they're asking him to sack the board, that's one thing. But they seem to think that the board should sack themselves. And then who's going to run, run the club on a day-to-day basis? So I, there is a little bit of a mixed message there, I think. Do we know who does run the club on a day-to-day basis? It's Denise Barrett-Baxdale. It's Grant Ingalls commercially. It's Bill Kenwright. Um, and then Mashiri will just, as is his want and, and his right, is the 99 point. 4% majority investor will just interject as when he feels like it, usually around transfers and um, things like that. That's dangerous, isn't it? Massively. Isn't that yeah, dangerous, yeah, that, 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 Ollie? If it, and Ollie as well, you know, if I, I understand if a man puts the money in, but interjects when he feels like it, so it sets off all sorts of alarms. Yeah, and, and you see the evidence of it in the, I mean, not particularly the last, few transfer windows since I think he stayed out a little bit. But, um, you know, you can look at all sorts of sort of very strange transfers and, and also you know, whims that the owner acted on where he was he was trying to get, you know, he was trying to get Gareth Bale. There have been sort of wild bids, which some of which have been accepted and they've signed players, some of which haven't. There's always been a a, a suggestion from within the club in pretty much every transfer window that we felt we had a plan and then the owner came in with this player or or an agent had a word with him or he liked this player or he was told that this player was great. And then you, sometimes you've had managers calling shots, sometimes director of football. But if you look at the managers who've come and gone and the directors of football who've come and gone, Marcel Brantz, Steve Walsh, uh, they've now got Kevin Thelwell, I don't think there's ever really been a, a strong sense that the directors of football or the manager have been able to lead a well-run football operation. It's too often seemed to have been sort of driven by whims. And even when it's been the manager or the director of football, it's never seemed very joined up. Where does where does he sit on the scale of the fans' anger, Greg? Because, I mean, he has put a lot of money into 
the club. So how much anger is being directed at him and what for? I'd say a significant amount of the anger is, is directed at him. And it is quite complex, so bear with me, but they're kind of they're angry at him for not sacking the board and not making changes and not moving someone as they saw as like a you know quite a kind of moribund chairman and Bill Kenwright had been there for too long and needed some fresh blood. Um they're angry at him for that. Uh they're angry at him for being impressionable, wasting so much money during his tenure, uh, that it's left them now hamstrung and they actually can barely spend in this window and they so desperately need it. I think they're angry because they really felt when he arrived, despite any twinges of kind of, you know, be careful what you wish for, they actually felt this was their chance. And then that first window, you know, when he initially began to to sanction these huge, and Gilfie Sigurdsson, the summer of three number 10s, at the time, those warning signs weren't as loud as they became. But then, like I said earlier, Chappers, he, he's also, I mean, he's invested over a billion. This is like 1.26 yeah. billion. And I think his fortune's estimated at like 1.7 billion. If, you know, and how, how accurate that is in Forbes. And I'm sure he's got extremely wealthy man, but he's invested an awful lot of money. There's this stadium now, which is actually looks like a football stadium. It's on track to be open in the next couple of years. On you know the on the Liverpool waterfront that I I feel will become like a world class arena for for Everton to play football in, um, but ultimately they could be playing it in the Championship because of his decision making and because of his failings and then just I think he kind of finally needles them by the way he communicates so he will either release statements these days or go on talk sports and and speak to to um, Jim White. And that's you know that winds fans up because they they would prefer him to do, maybe do something substantial, long form interview, whether it's on television, radio, or maybe you know these days Everton don't even do uh, the shareholder meetings in person. But the days when he would turn up and speak to shareholders, that's not happening anymore. So they don't feel they're getting a true, they don't feel they're getting enough of a plan from him in a sense that he knows what's gone wrong and how to fix it. His um his last interview with with Jim White, he suggested, and this was only a few days ago, he suggested, Ollie, that the Everton fans were responsible for the revolving door of managers at the club in recent seasons. Would you hear that? <laughs> you hear that as a football fan and go, what? I mean, yeah. what? You're blaming us? Yeah. And some of the decision we've taken is together with the fans, right? All the managers who've been left been driven by the fans, not by me initially. And I think you've got to stay with the manager. The only one, the only one where he may have a point was Benitez, I suppose. But that was because he appointed a former Liverpool manager, and and you're immediately going to get the fans' backs up there because it, it it demonstrates rightly or wrongly a, a lack of comprehension of the, the footballing landscape on Merseyside. I, I, I would give I would give Everton fans more more credit than that. I would say that they would have they weren't hostile. To Benitez from 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 day one, they were they were quietly um, quietly impressed by the first month as, as results were good and you know yes there were a couple of banners outside his house outside somebody else's house on on, on the Wirral you know before he was appointed but um, you know I thought Everton's fans last season gave that a go until they went on this horrendous run at which point almost inevitably the sort of the context of being ex-Liverpool and, and not really seem seeming to sort of 
engage with the club and not really seem to, um, you know, the football wasn't great, etc. He didn't really have any kind of rapport with the fan base. I think that's that plus results plus performances was more of an issue ultimately than than being ex Liverpool. But the fans didn't like Allardyce. Mashiri was going to replace him with with, with Marco Silva um, at the end of that season anyway. But, but Marco Silva came in, and you know the fans the fans sort of warmed to him. Same with Kuman. An owner can be strong enough to ride that out. Yeah, and yeah, he can be strong enough if it's felt like he's made the right decision. But he's always been so, so easily swayed by opinion, whether it's the opinion of the manager, whether it's the opinion of the director of football who might have come and go, whether it's the opinion of agent, whether it's the opinion of the fan base. And if you're coming into it with with no real background in football, no expertise, and you're just vulnerable to sort of short-term dips in form and whatever, you're not going to get any kind of long-term planning or long-term thinking. That's what we've seen with Everton. Just one more on off the field, and then we'll do on the field, which will obviously be a joy as well, hmm. uh, Greg, for you. Um, uh, everything that happened with Alicia Usmanov. Now, the, the Guardian reported on Sunday that multiple football managers said they were interviewed for the Goodison job in the presence of Usmanov. What was his, what do you think his influence was before he was sanctioned? And him being sanctioned and losing his money how much do we need to take that in into account since it's a couple of things to kind of um to address there really. i think you know during the the spell um the paddy and i have been working at the athletic core in everton it's been clear to us that several people have, have spoken about being interviewed or experiences of of you know managers being interviewed uh players sometimes even being spoken to by by Usmanov. The talk of his kind of mansion, almost castle type thing in Bavaria, where he, you know there's there was always a, a suggestion that Carlo Ancelotti went to meet him before he became the Everton manager. So in a sense, the, the the Guardian piece didn't surprise some people, but you know it reminds you that this is an extra layer of kind of um, murkiness. Really, they were partners at Arsenal when they were on, you know uh, when they were. Shareholders at Arsenal. Um, Fad Mashiri was Usmanov's um, accountant. That's how he made his fortune. And it's probably reasonable to believe that they've stayed close friends, business, uh, you know, allies, and and so on and so forth since. You know, there's even been reports that, that Usmanov had told people that Everton are his club. I think in terms of it's it's important to say in terms of accounting and in terms of the paper trail and in terms of official documents. That doesn't appear to be the case. Fard Mashiri, you know, is listed as, as Everton's owner. But even he's admitted during the piece that, you know, he kind of, he's relied on Usmanov for advice. And of course, USM, Usmanov's company, now, as you say, subject to them, those sanctions, was a sponsor of Everton's training ground, was in their riding to become the, the, give the naming rights for the stadium and, and paid, I think it was 30 million, which Everton kept just to have first rights at bidding for those naming rights. And that was obviously pre the uh, Russian-Ukraine war. So um, there was a significant investment even through legitimate channels from Usmanov. The tap being turned off by these sanctions has definitely affected Everton. Losing the USM source of, of revenue was, hu- was hugely impactful. They've scrabbled around to try and, in some small way, make that make up for that. With, when we talk about Grant Ingalls, you know, one of his challenges is to try and 
plug this shortfall when you're also trying to build a stadium and try and stay competitive and sacking managers every five minutes and paying off their staff. So it's been, it, it, it's had a huge impact. It continues to have a huge impact. Like I, I hinted at earlier, that's why, why they're struggling. Part of the reason why I believe they're struggling to bring in players this month is largely because of the financial fair play. But also I think that they're running out of money. Let's move on to that next then. Uh, we'll talk transfer window, financial fair play and what might happen to Everton on the pitch. You know, I put my money where my mouth is and, you know, that is most that an owner can do. And I think you've got to stay with the manager to get the systems going, you know, the players that he buys. You know, I have a lot of faith in in Frank. You know, he'll get it right. Greg mentioned the financial fair play just before that little break. Everton fans will probably look at Chelsea and go, well, hang on a minute, they've spent £400 million under Todd Bowley since he took over, which is a fifth, I think, of what they spent in the whole of the Abramovich era. So how does financial fair play work there? One of the big differences I've I've understood from talking to finance experts the last 24, 48 hours is Chelsea have brought in around £650 million in player sales right before you do anything else. So, so immediately that helps their budget, and of course, uh, you know Chelsea's budget is is far bigger anyway. You know they make, make far more money on match day, far more commercially. They're in the they're in the Champions League this season at least, and and you know that they have they have an awful lot of revenue. I find myself pretty alarmed by the amount they're spending in in mm. you know in the summer and then and then in January and and. The manner in which they're spending it, and I do, I do find myself wondering, you know, how are they going to whittle down this to a twenty-five man squad? If they, you know, uh, or, or are they just going to end up having to sort of give away players on loan to get them off the off the wage bill? Or, or you know, th- th- there are there are so many questions. But the reality is that is that Everton are already in this FFP trap. You know, an Everton fan was on Twitter this morning to replying to me about my article and saying, well, look. Our net spend over the last five years is the 13th highest or something like that in the Premier League. Well, the issue is the net spend over the last 18 months has been very small precisely because their net spend and their wage spend and their spend on getting rid of managers um, and, and directors of football, paying people off after you know poor decisions, that was so enormous over a three-year period that Everton are, even with the most lenient implementation of FFP, which I think we see in the Premier League, they are under really tight restrictions now. And that's that's where it's hit Everton. You know, may, Maybe if they stay up and they stay up again next year, then you know, there'll be light at the end of the tunnel and there'll be the new stadium and, and suddenly there'll be, there'll be revenue. But in the meantime, Everton are really scratching around. And I say scratching around, look, they did spend some money in the summer, uh, Anana from Lille was mm. 30 plus million. Ghana from Man United, Mopay, 15 million each. Dwight McNeil, 20 million each. But for the most part, that was that was paid for by selling Richarlison to Tottenham, which I'm sure was not in anybody's, uh, you know, it was not something anybody at Everton wanted to do. And by losing some historic big earners, Alan, Sigurdsson, Delph, Tosun from the wage bill. Um, so Everton find themselves scratching around like they did under Benitez. But basically the last four transfer windows have been scratching around and really trying to sort of paper over the cracks and leave themselves with a squad which is good enough to stay up. And I'm not sure they've got that. 
I'm trying to desperately remember a graphic we did on Match of the Day two a couple of weeks ago, Greg, on the on the players who Everton had bought for twenty five million pounds plus yeah, under Mashiri, yeah. which I think was was it eight? I think it was eighteen. I think for twenty five million pounds or more, of which I think maybe four are still at the mm. club. Which which I mean highlights how bad their business has been over uh, recent years. Um, what can they do? This window, they're limited to to doing deals that involve a loan with an or straight loans or loans with obligations to buy, which is obviously I think more attractive to some clubs who might have players of some value. Um, and Ollie's right to say that they did spend in the summer. They did do that, uh, and he's right to point out a lot of that was was Richarlison. The money they recouped on Richarlison. But then even the structure of some of those deals, like Dwight Mc... Everton wanted um, Corne from Burnley. That was their first target from Burnley. But because he had a, a clause in his contract, they would have to have paid the fee for him up front and they couldn't afford it. So they, instead they took Dwight McNeil with a differently structured deal where it was, you know, instalments rising up to 20 million. So they were able to do that within the parameters of how they, they have to be so careful at the moment. They've got to answer to the Premier League with most deals because, you know, they are still in a sort of um, a period where there's a, there's some oversight. They consult them over their transfers, which is quite an unusual situation, but they have to be really careful. Now, this window, like I say, it's loans or loans with obligations, unless, of course, they can... And, and you're seeing things like Nathan Broadhead, who's a young striker who's never played for the first team in, in the Premier League, who's, who's been withdrawn from loan at one club and sold for a relatively small amount but they're really trying any margin that they can get to contribute to wages for a new player or some of the fee they're trying to find because they're that desperate to strengthen Frank Lampard's first team. And all their rivals are just buying are buying their targets around them, aren't they? Yeah, well, they are. And and that is also the other point, isn't it? Not only the... There are so many things working against them when, when Everton Football Club should be such an attractive proposition. But... Everything off the field and the protests and the finances, the general atmosphere around the place, if they are in the same market as a lot of those teams around them, they are not going to be first choice for a lot of those players, are they, Greg? Let's 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 be honest. I mean, I know, for example, Nottingham Forest have got a lot of money, mm. but players might look at teams who appear to be, even if they're struggling, that the project might be on the up. And that is a massive issue for Everton as they try and bring players in. Someone said to me that they, your players would be looking, potential recruits this, this window would be looking at social media, looking at videos of Yerry Mina, Ellis Sims and Anthony Gordon's car getting chased down Goodison Road and you know Mina getting confronted by fans and having to get out of his car while his kid's in the car. And that would actively be working against their efforts to recruit players and the players would think, you know, I maybe you kind of were leading to there. Nah, it's not for me. Don't fancy that. I'll go, I'll, I'll join Forest or I'll join Southampton or, you know, I'll go to Fulham or whoever it is. So it's, um, contributes to the Maya really. And it kind of brings us back to why I kind of felt whether it was overblown or not, that at the moment Everton are in an absolute mess and so many elements of the club feel broken. Where does Frank Lampard sit in all of this for you, Ollie? I think he came in with a really difficult job last season. I think I think the club was broken at that point, and I think he, um, after you know a really 
difficult first couple of months in which results didn't pick up. I think he really united it and the fan base, which we've, you know, we've, we've talked about being toxic, <laughs> the fan base really galvanised and united the team as much as much as the other way around, I, I would say, um, in those in those final sort of few months of the season or a couple of months of the season. Everton's fan base are, I think, in some ways the best asset because because of the atmosphere they can create when it's when when Goodison's really rocking, um, and it's obviously it, it can go to the other extreme when it's an angry place. But I I would say you know, re- returning to Lampard, I think he did a really good job to keep them up last season. He lost his best player, Richarlison, and and wasn't able to uh, hasn't been able to buy a, a top quality forward at all. It's been. Mope McNeil, I think. I think the defensive signings he's made, Cody and Tarkovsky, have been good. I think you can see an improvement in their defending. You can see the, the two younger fullbacks coming in, and there is a sense of progression in some ways. But the results of the past few weeks have been, or the past couple of months, have been really poor. They're in that situation again, where you think, well, are they going to have to roll a dice and, and and change manager or gamble on changing manager again in order to stay up? I hope not, because I, I, I do see some impressive things that Lampard has done. I'm going to give one, and this is this is such a, a meagre crumb of comfort, but I'll I'll throw it out there anyhow, Greg. Is that teams come to Goodison at the moment? No, and James Ward Prowse said this to me on Saturday evening, knowing that they can use the atmosphere to their advantage as the as the visitors. Mm. Um, the boot maybe is on the other foot this weekend and maybe Everton could use the atmosphere at the London Stadium against West Ham to their advantage. I did say it was a meagre crumb of comfort, but we'll it might be it. something. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it, Chappers. It's, it's, I, I mean, I've been thinking for a while since Boxing Day, probably before that actually, that Everton are, be- are going to be better on the road this season, such as is, is this kind of unrest that, um, you know, it, you can even look back to Wolves where, you know, Everton are finishing with a disappointing, but all right, draw again, two like struggling teams on Boxing Day. And then the fans feel that they get frustrated and, and they're, they're frustrated that the ball's not going forward towards the end of that game. And the, the, the boos and the, and, and the moans start and all of a sudden, whether it affects him or not, James Tarkovsky decides to send a crossfield pass that ends up in a counter-attack that Wolves score and Everton lose that game. And that adds to this negative momentum. So hopefully, away from that, I mean, there'll still be this remarkable travelling support who follow Everton all around the Premier League. There'll still probably be 6,000 fans there at the Olympic Stadium, but perhaps they can... Because they were good at United in the Cup. They, they lost, but they yeah. were good. They were good at City, really good, I thought. They're better when the pressure's off, are they? And there's no expectation. Yeah, whether that's the case, obviously, at West Ham is another story. Yeah. But certainly they won't have to deal with the lion's share of the uh, of the negativity from the stands. And rumours continue to swirl that at some point David Moyes could go back to Everton. Yeah, I mean, you could you could certainly see a world in which Lampard, despite what Michelle said about wanting stability and backing him, you know, he, he decides if Everton didn't get a result on Saturday... Lampard's job ends up he gets the sack and Moyes comes in in a caretaker capacity if 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 West Ham were to get rid of him until the end of the season. You could certainly see a world where that happens. David Moyes has made no secret, I think, that you know he feels like he's got unfinished business with Everton. You know, he's spoken to Everton about the manager's job since he left a couple of times. And I could uh, 
I could well see that. Cool. That'd be another three-hour podcast that we do with that. Just happens. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will leave it there. Ollie, Greg, thank you very much. All the articles they've discussed on The Athletic right now, and you can subscribe for £1.99 a month for a year at theathletic.com slash football pod. See you tomorrow. The Athletic.